And it seems to me that when you look at it from the perspective of the Apostle Paul, for example, the author of Galatians, the degree of torment and, and tension that he finds himself in, torn between his, his love of the brethren of the churches of Galatia and his frustration with even anger with what's, what they've been doing and not so much about them but those that are behind the scenes gaining them to, to effectively uh, try and combine, if you will, faith in Christ and at the same time hold on to the law of Moses and require that both are necessary in order to sustain a right relationship with God. But then, of course, there's the church, churches of Galatia as well, the brethren there, who themselves are caught between the two. There's the Apostle Paul telling them one thing. And there are these other, what we might call Judaizing Christians. Christians, Christians, but Christians that are insisting that we have to hold on to the law of Moses. And that Jesus, in that sense, is just a, a, an add-on to, to Moses. And just think for a moment what it must be like for those brethren, what it must have been like for those brethren. Torn between conflicting truth claims, the apostle on one side and these other brethren, if I remember correctly, purporting to come from the mother church in Jerusalem and having all of the prestige and authority that that, that, that means behind their claims. What did the brethren do with this? And then of course, as we'll be focusing in a moment in chapter 5 itself, there's another point of tension. The conflict between the flesh and the spirit, as Paul describes it. So I, I guess I want to begin the lesson this morning with that, with that awareness of that sense of tension. This is not something that's foreign to us. Um, we were just talking to Michael a moment ago about the tensions that, that have arisen, it seems, especially in the last, say, decade in, in, in our society of Australia. Um, uh, conflicting worldviews in, in a way uh, when it's mixed in with the intolerance in the name of tolerance um, uh, becomes a very trying, confusing time for us. Even those of us here today, as, as a church, um, uh, most of us, I, I think, I hope, with an understanding of our identity, who, who we are as a church, as a family in Christ, committed to uh, the, the, the New Testament church, apostolic Christianity, that is, that is Christianity as it was developed, revealed, established by Jesus' apostles in the first century. So we look to to their writings, the New Testament scriptures, for direction in answering the question of who are we as a church and what should we do as a church, etc., etc. Because that runs contrary to, to the majority of believers out there, denomination world. And there's quite a broad spectrum of, of various denominations with different opinions and, 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 and like what was challenging the Galatians, different add-ons to the New Testament teachings. And so we're, we're conflicted, we're, 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 we're caught in that tension as well. 
But so, as we move through chapter 5 this morning, I hope that you'll bear that in, in, in mind, hold that in the back of your mind. The tension that was being experienced by the Apostle Paul and those Christians that he was writing to in the first century, the churches of Galatia, but also our own experience. Our own experience of church, what it is to be a faithful Christian and what it is to be a faithful Christian living not just in a denominational world but in a Western society that is, that is just... It seems these days sprinting back to a pre-Christian paganism. I feel much better for having got that off my chest. Um, can I just pause there and give you just a useful additional bit of information? Um, Victoria Point fuel prices are still at $1.17 a litre. Now, that's, if you've got a, a, an empty tank out there, instead of filling up at the high prices that are, that are set around, take, spend a dollar on petrol to go down to Vicky Point and you'll be well rewarded. At least as of this morning that was the case. Wouldn't I be embarrassed if... So, so, wing ahead maybe. The law of Moses, on the one hand, and the faithfulness of Christ on the other. That's the dilemma. That's the choice that the churches of Galatia were faced with. I'm just going to give a quick sort of background to, to lead into chapter 5. Um, going back to the law makes no sense, is Paul's point. He's very blunt about that. If that position were true, if that thinking, if that logic were, 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 was true, was, was acceptable, then why on earth did God send his son to die, to suffer and die, if we could be right with God on the basis of the law of Moses, or any other law, of course, for that matter, if that were even possible, God would never have sent his son to suffer and die as he did. He only did that because it was absolutely necessary if we were to have the chance, the opportunity, to be reconciled to God. There's a great deal at stake here, says Paul. Relying upon one's own law-keeping performance is futile because any system of law demands 100% perfection. That's the problem with a system of law. It demands flawless, perfect obedience. It's all about our performance. If the law cannot save us then, what, what use is it? A logical question. Was God setting us up then when he gave the law of Moses? Was God playing games with us? No, no, not at all. Law, in fact, served a number of very critical purposes, among which the law of Moses highlights our predicament as captives to sin by demonstrating our moral failure. If there was no standard of law, there would be no objective recognition of what's right and what's wrong. And so it would become pretty much the way the West is wanting to head today. Each man doing, each woman doing what is right in their own eyes, their own sight. And many of you, of course, will recognise that that's precisely the description of the condition of Israel towards the end of the period of the judges. In practical terms, law condemns us rather than freeing us. It confronts us with our need 
for a saviour. So where the law of Moses on the one hand rightly understood points to the saviour, the faithfulness of Christ demonstrates that he and he alone is the saviour to which the law points which the law, the one which the law anticipated. And so on that basis, the law of Moses was only a temporary arrangement, the means to a much greater end, the promised Messiah, in whom we trust rather than trusting in ourselves, our own law-keeping performance. Now that Christ has come, the old covenant law, Hagar, you might remember the the, uh, allegory that that the Apostle Paul uses in chapter 4, Hagar representing the law given at Mount Sinai, the old covenant on the one hand, and Sarah representing the new covenant, the covenant of promise, the covenant made to uh, Abraham that among other things, through him all nations will be blessed, which of course pointed to and anticipated the Messiah. So Hagar, or the old covenant law, is laid aside in favour of the new. Brings us to chapter 5 of verse 1. For freedom, says Paul, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So in our graphic, again, the choice. Law alone, on the one hand, means ongoing death and bondage, says Paul. You want to go back to the law of Moses? Fine. But understand that's going to lump you right back where you started, right back where the Jews have been for centuries, And it didn't do them a great deal of of good. On the other hand, Christ alone brings new life and freedom. So, Christ has set us free, says Paul. Well, free from what? I want to summarise it in two two, uh, statements. Free from the burden and curse of seeking to be justified by our own performance through law-keeping. And if you've never thought about it, there is much to be grateful that we do not depend upon our own performance to maintain, to establish and then maintain a right relationship with God. If we have that in our mind, think about it. How on earth would one ever have a sense of peace and security They'd be living constantly in fear. Have I got all the bases covered? Have I ticked all the boxes? Oh my goodness, I don't even know what the boxes are. What if I've missed out on one? You get the sense of the the tension, the internal conflict. And of course that internal conflict translates into an external conflict. How do I relate to the other? Especially if their list is different to my list. If we can't agree about all the boxes and then each of us tick those same boxes, oh my goodness, that means one of two things. Either I'm wrong because my list is different to your list, but I can't go there. I mean, my, my relationship with God is at stake. Wow, it must be you that's wrong. And if you won't 
with your list to match my list, guess what? You're an evil person. You don't love God. If you did love God, your list would be the same as mine. And so that, 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 that tension between all as a result of this misconception from which Christ has freed us, that we have to be right about everything, that we believe right about everything that we do in order to be right with God. Free from the guilt and corruption of sin through forgiveness in Christ, and I'm very deliberate in that, that's one of Paul's favourite phrases, in Christ. And there's only two types of people in the world, those people that are in Christ and the people, well let's be optimistic about it, the people who are not yet in Christ. We might hope to God for a day when everybody would humbly acknowledge the Messiah and submit to him. But until that day, it's only those who do acknowledge him and submit to him. Buried with Christ in baptism, says Paul. That just as he died, we die to sin. That's your forgiveness of sins. But wait for it, there's the newness of life. Just as he was raised from the grave, so we are raised from the grave in baptism to walk in newness of life. That's freedom. That's the freedom that the Apostle talks about when he talks about Christ having set us free. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. That's that principle of law. Keep part of it, you've got to keep all of it. And you're keeping all of it, you better keep it perfectly. What a curse. But thanks be to God that Christ himself became a curse for us, says Paul in Galatians chapter 3. He became a curse for us in order that we might be freed from the curse and the bondage of law. Verse 4, you who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. The Galatians were not just saying we're going to go back to the law of Moses or for those, probably the majority of them who were, who were never Jews in the first place but rather Gentiles we're going, to, we're going to embrace the law of Moses. What they were being coerced into doing was to add the law of Moses as Gentile believers to Christ. Some of you probably think me a little bit eccentric even in my concern. Um, may appear to be a bit overzealous to some and, that, and that's fine. But let me quickly explain to you the cause for my concern about what we do and don't do in worship as a church. Over the past 
I don't know, what, 1,500 years? Christendom has busily evolved. And much of that evolution has centred in its, its worship practices and its organisation. And I feel pretty comfortable in saying that about 75% of those changes are the result of reaching back into the law of Moses and adopting that, Christianising it, baptising it, if you will. Not so. If I understand and if I represent Paul correctly, Paul says, no, it's not and also. You want to keep part of the law, fine. Keep all of it. Keep all of it. And that's intended to impress upon us how important this issue is from the Apostle Paul's point of view. And I'm inclined to agree with Paul. Let the law of Moses stand and and serve its purpose as God gave it and intended to be, not, not for Christians, but to bring us to Christ. And then how does he put it in Galatians 3? Once Christ comes, once Christ, once faith comes, the law has done its job. Thank you, good boy. You're retired. Not that you failed, you've accomplished God's purpose for you. Enough of my soapbox. This next section of the text, I'm going to read from the message because I think it does a particularly good earthy job of, of conveying the meaning. You were running superbly. Who cut in on you, deflecting you from the true course of obedience? This detour doesn't come from the one who called you into the race in the first place. This isn't of Christ. And please don't toss this off as if it's insignificant. It only takes a minute, oh, a minute, a minute. You know, I promised myself I wouldn't do that and, and I did it. It only takes a minute amount of yeast, you know, to permeate an entire loaf of bread. Deep down, the master has given me confidence that you will not defect. But the one who is upsetting you, whoever he is, will bear the divine judgment. As for the rumour that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision, as I did in those pre-Damascus road days, that's absurd. Why would I still be persecuted then? If I were preaching that old message... No one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. If I'm just adding the cross to Moses, that would cause no offence to to many, if any, of the Jews. Why are they hunting me down like a wild animal? No. No. Why don't these agitators, obsessed as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? That's a pretty graphic picture, isn't it? You think Paul is happy about the situation? He's angry. Not because of any ego issue on his part. He's angry that the work of God for which he's worked so hard is on the verge of just falling apart. The sort of anger that's born of love and concern 
and grief at the prospect of loss. It's absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence, love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? Paul emphasises that God's call to freedom in Christ is not a a licence to sin or do as we wish, which I think sometimes Paul is misunderstood in this way. Which, of course, is the other side of the self-centred coin to to legalism. Let me me illustrate it this way. I think this is a really important thing for us to understand. One side of the coin, legalism, which is seeking to control God through my own performance. You see, if, if I'm approaching God from the perspective of legalism, which should not be confused with faithfulness or obedience, but it is about my manipulating God. God is obligated to me because I am so good. Do you see how that works? I do all the right things. God owes me. And you know, that sounds pretty crude and crass. But let me put it this way, and I hear a lot of this. You know, I can't believe that something like baptism is that important. Because I I just can't accept the implications of that. If baptism is part of the process, an essential part of the process of becoming a Christian, then that means all these good people are in trouble. And all these good people, well, it depends upon who you're talking to. You might be talking to a believer, and they're probably meaning all the good people in the churches that I know, the many churches that don't teach, or even flatly teach against, opposed to the biblical teaching about baptism. And that's fine, that's fine, that line of reasoning that legalistic line of reasoning because effectively what you're saying is they're good enough surely they're good enough just look at at how nice their lives are what nice people they are that's legalism it's not about niceness it's about whether one is in Christ or not in Christ it's not about us and our performance our works It's about whether or not we're in Christ, the faithful one, through whose faithfulness 
we stand justified before God because of our relationship with him. Because, as Paul puts it, because we are in Christ. But I might hasten to add, you know, you Christians are a bit narrow-minded. What about the other religions? What about all the good Buddhists? What about all the good Muslims? What about the good Hindus? They must be acceptable to God too, on the same criteria, the same basis. What about the good atheists? There's plenty of good atheists. I am I'm constantly amazed. Peter Singer, if, if anybody recognises that name, it'll probably be in a negative light. Prominent Australian philosopher. Controversial. Controversial. He's the guy who claims that the life, the value of, of, a, of, a, of, a, uh, of a healthy chimpanzee is greater than the, the, the value of a, of a human life that, that is uh, severely disabled. And that's, from a Christian point of view particularly, that's, that's pretty shocking. Do you know anything about his private life? I, I, I don't know if I know of a Christian, past or present, frankly, that puts their money where their mouth is and does more good in the way of charitable, benevolent works. The great majority of his income is channeled straight to charity. Now Christians quibble about 10% and there's a carryover back to the law of Moses incidentally, tithing. Christians quibble about that. Someone like Singer doesn't blink an eyelid at, at, at more of a proportion. I, I believe it's something like about 90% of his income is channeled to good causes. Causes which many Christians would, would, would say, hey, that's great, that's great. Does that make him a Christian? Does that make him a child of God in the sense of being reconciled with God? Think about the theological implications of that. Can you imagine Paul saying, what are you thinking, what are you saying, what are you doing? go back to the law of Moses why did Christ die you can be justified with God on the basis of being a good person a nice person why did Christ die and you know look I I might again be coming across as a little bit excited a little bit overexcited but I'll tell you what I reckon Paul would be speaking at quite a few decibels above what I am right now We've got to get going. We've got to wrestle with this. Admittedly, this point of tension. But come down on the side of Paul, please. Not on the side of the, in this case, the Judaizing Christians. Who are wanting to add laws to Christ. Even if that law is brought down to being a good person. Law 
righteousness, seeking to control God through confounding his will with my will. You know, in, in really in the last 10 years, who'd have thought that so many of the mainstream denominations would fall into line behind the LGBTQ agenda? Who'd have thought? Just 10 years ago. 20 years ago, it would have been almost inconceivable. But lo and behold, it's all been rationalised and tweaked so God's will conveniently aligns with the outcome that I want. And I described these, legalism on the one hand, lawlessness on the other, as two sides of the same coin because the coin, the common denominator is it's all about me. A legalist looks very different to a, a, a libertine. The legalist usually appears to be the one who's the narrow-minded, impatient, demanding, often troublemaker. The libertine is the nice, warm, fuzzy person. You know, at the end of the day, as long as you're sincere, it's okay. Everybody knows God is love. And so don't, don't bother the poor, the poor whatever, the fornicators and the adulterers, the sodomites. Don't, 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 don't fuss about them. That's unkind. True freedom lies in and grows through love. A self-centred freedom looks very different. If you'll notice there in verse 26, in no time at all you'll be annihilating each other and where will your precious freedom be then? And I want to tell you, wherever there is legalism, there will sooner or later be division and strife. Wherever there is libertinism, there will sooner or later be division and strife. At the risk, if you're not aware of it, at the risk of um, uh, naming a church, the Anglican Fellowship of Churches throughout the world are teetering on a division. Precisely over the issue of ordaining homosexual priests and accepting, condoning same-sex marriage. The Anglican churches, the Anglican churches in Australia, with the exception of the Sydney diocese, are saying, "What's your problem with that, man?" But more significantly, the Anglican churches in the Third World, places like Africa, are looking at the First World countries. And their Anglican fellows in those churches, places like the UK and Australia, the US. And they're saying, Have you people lost your mind? Have you, have you lost sight of what the Bible is and teaches? Don't be fooled into thinking that legalists have cornered the market on strife and controversy. Libertinism, lawlessness breeds the same problem. 
verse 16 through 18, live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is Paul's response. This is Paul's uh, nudge in the direction and, 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 and antidote, if you will, to legalism and, and lawlessness. There's a different way, says Paul. Live by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not subject to the law. So there's that, 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 that conflict again. The yellow circle, the flesh, the life corrupted by sin. The blue circle, the Holy Spirit, God's God active among his people. Now, I just want to bring in Paul's thought in Philippians 2, just to help us make sense of this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And Paul's not a legalist, remember. What he's saying there is equivalent to what he describes in Galatians as led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, not by your own flesh, your own really good feelings and your own really good ideas. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work, says Paul, because after all it's God working in you. It's not, it's not either or in this case. It's not me living by pulling up my own bootstraps in my own strength and my own wisdom. But, can I hasten to add, neither is it God just simply doing it all for me. It is a partnership. And my part in the partnership, your part in the partnership, is one of cooperation and surrender to the Spirit. Christian, you choose conflict or partnership with God's Spirit. That's our choice. Conflict or partnership with God's Spirit. And of course, what Scripture describes is the process of sanctification, our being made holy, is directly related to the degree to which we submit to the Spirit, the degree to which we follow the Spirit. The degree that we allow the Spirit to have of us. Some have, some have said, I think it was C.S. Lewis, it's not so much a question of whether we have the Spirit, it's a question of how much of us does the Spirit have. Big difference. Big difference. How much of us does the Spirit of God have? The works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sources, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't have the luxury of time to sort of unpack a lot of these words, the definitions. It would be very beneficial. But let me just summarise this into four categories. Dysfunctional or misdirected sexuality. Dysfunctional or misdirected spirituality. 
dysfunctional or misdirected relationships, interpersonal, the relationship between people. And finally, dysfunctional or misdirected relationships, intrapersonal, relationship with myself, as it were. Particular, particularly interesting one, drunkenness. If we were to translate that into our modern context and think of it as a theme, we would think of addiction. And addiction is a, is a plague on our society. And the general consensus seems to be that addiction at its root, at its core, is about people who are trying to cope with life, in particular cope with the struggle within. Some describe it as, a, as an anaesthetic, a painkiller. We turn to alcohol or some other drug and become dependent upon it, we become captive to it, trapped by it. But if we could look at the source rather than the end result, the tragic often end result, it's about an emotional pain that I'm looking to some sort of substance to try and ease the pain. All this Paul associates with the works of the flesh. Listen to the translation uh, in the, the message. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time, repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalising everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. There is no law against such things. There is no law, I would suggest, against such things because these are the very things that are intended to be the outcome of God's law, God's will for us. As Paul mentions, it's all summed up. Love your neighbour as yourself. Of course, following the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 22. Love God, love your neighbour. On these two commands hinge all the law and the prophets. The metaphor, and I wish we had more time. Fruit. I guess the proper thing to recognise here is the singular nature of the language. We're talking about one thing with nine different aspects. It's not a smorgasbord of nine things that you get to pick and choose of. The fruit of spirit seeks to bring about in our lives all of these nine things, just like different facets of the one diamond. Seems to me likely that Paul has got in the back of his mind the creation mandate, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth 
and subdue it. The idea that we should expand the Garden of Eden into the rest of creation, subduing, conveying the idea of taming and, and developing. Creation is an ongoing project, pregnant with possibilities. Today we call it science and technology. But of course note, in chapter 3 of Genesis, the fall and its consequences enter the works of the flesh. Paul opens a window into the process of sanctification and redemption in our fallen world. Neglected gardens end up full of weeds and diseases and predators, ranging from caterpillars and snails to rabbits and kangaroos. Productive gardens are those which are tended and nurtured. As a very young Christian, I remember another Christian telling me a story, an engagement they had with their neighbour. And, and she was meaning to be friendly and, and to open up, hoping to open up a conversation about God. And he was out the front garden, quite a, quite a nice garden apparently, um, a bit of a showpiece. And she just said to him, you know, isn't that, isn't that wonderful handiwork of God? And he snarled back at her apparently. Yeah, you should have seen it when God had control over it before I got here. And he's right. He's more right. He's a better theologian than he realised, and he will ever realise. That's exactly right. That's the creation mandate. God says, here are the raw materials. I'll start you off in the Garden of Eden. Now you take that and you spread it through the rest of planet Earth. That's exactly what God wants and expects of us. He wants us to work. He wants us to work in cooperation with his spirit for his glory. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also be guided by the spirit. Let us not become, notice again, let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. The antidote to all of that division and strife, the works of the flesh, is the work of the spirit. The work of the spirit in our lives. Yes, the world is corrupted. The world is full of weeds, thorns and thistles. You remember Genesis chapter 3. But God has moved redemptively through his spirit, through the coming of his son, to redeem us. God acted among his people through our cooperation with him. A world full of potential. Interesting in Paul's language, the acts of the flesh, the works of the flesh. On our own, typically that's what we come up with. As opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. Christian, we get to choose. Resistance or surrender to God's Spirit. Do I grow a tomato? Well, no. But my nurture or hindrance directly impacts the quantity and quality of the fruit. That's my part in the process of developing the fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, do not quench the Spirit. Don't resist or work against the Spirit is Paul's admonition. An old Cherokee told his grandson, my son, there is a battle between two wolves inside all of us. One is evil, it is anger, jealousy, greed, resentment, inferiority, lies and ego. The other is good, joy, peace, love, humility, kindness, empathy and truth. 
The boy thought about it and asked, Grandfather, which wolf wins? And the old man quietly answered, The one you feed. The one you feed. That's interesting, but I want to suggest it's only partly true. It addresses the primordial conflict. Yeah, Anakin and Darth Vader. What a titanic struggle within the one person. The one that starts so good and with so much promise but is corrupted to go over to the dark side. And that's a metaphor for the lives of all of us, the challenges, the tension that we all live with ourselves. On a bigger scale, Harry Potter classic, good versus evil. Um, Lord of the Rings fascinates me because there's a lot of theology, Christian theology in the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a believer. And Aragorn is one of the one of the masterpieces of Tolkien's insight. When we're first introduced to the character of Aragorn, of course we're introduced to him as the mysterious, almost sulking in the shadows, Strider, the Ranger. And it's only later in the story that we become privileged with the insight as to what's going on for this mysterious person that keeps the cloak, the hood over his head to stay in the shadows. With him lives the fear that his ancestor, Isidore, I think, something like that. The king who had the opportunity to throw the ring into the furnace but was too weak and held it back. And all of the terrible ramifications that impacted Middle Earth as a result of that. He was fearful that he would turn into that person. But amidst that fear, as you've got guys like Gandalf trying to steer him and encourage him, is the godly king. The potential to become the one that he was born to be. To be freed from stride of the ranger, to take his rightful place as king of Gondor. Theology to the core. I like this one, two room wisdom. I I made a choice to be good today. And I wonder, I guess most of you read it the same way as I did, but some of you who looked me closely at it, it's not that simple, is it? Within the letters G-O-O-D, is E-V-I-L. That's always the choice that we have. But here's my point. The Christian difference, whether we talk about the two wolves within, the struggle between Anakin, Skywalker and Darth Vader, from a Christian point of view, the difference is we cannot do it on our own. The struggle's there, absolutely. Profound insight, true insight. But Christianity says you can't do it on your own. Just as Paul said to those churches of Galatia, you can't do it on your own. Don't, don't rely upon the law. It's only through Christ. Not in our own wisdom and strength, through Christ and his spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. There is no law against such things. But I want to hasten to add, there's no law that can impose those things whether we talk about the history of the nation of Israel, where conspicuously, you know, you've got the great reformers like Hezekiah, King Hezekiah and King Josiah, 
who tried their best through law, through all of the mechanisms available to them, to impose the law of God upon these people, upon the covenant people of God. And some conformed, but guess what? As soon as the king died, it's back to business as usual. It's the same today, whether we talk about our society or the church within society, with our responsibility to be the pillar of truth, with our responsibility to be loving and light to the world around us. Imposing through rules will never, never accomplish transformation. A path of that nature has to be chosen. It cannot be coerced.